Night Happens with Pimelo Mutine. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Five minutes after two o'clock, it is Life Happens, and my name is Pimelo Mutine. And now that big conversation, I think everybody's been waiting for it, is finally here. We're discussing this afternoon white privilege. It's an open conversation. But I also would like you to be a bit more open yourselves as the listener about the conversation. So receive the conversation with an open heart is what I'm trying to say. My guests this afternoon are Kim Hiller, who's a communication strategist and political analyst, Lavlin Wadei, a social, uh, social equity and social justice consultant as well. And um, she joins me on the line, but Kim is here in studio with us. Good afternoon, ladies. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm not sure if Lovelyn is back with us on the line, but Lovelyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. <laughs> so I'm going to give you both um, an opportunity to define white privilege. We'll start with you, Kim. Thank you. Well, white privilege, I think we could define classically as undue uh, advantage socially and economically. But I think in South Africa, it takes on a particularly uh, sinister complexion because of the history that the particular history that we've had and I always describe white people as a part of a loyalty program that began in 1652 and still pays dividends today and we receive these benefits willingly um, without uh, guilt um, and without question so I think that is how I would define white privilege in South Africa, which unfortunately we speak about as a free South Africa, but which I personally describe as a wonderland of white privilege 25 years into democracy. Hmm. So a big disclaimer for those who have never heard of Kim, she is very white. In other words, she speaks about this as a white woman. Okay, so that, that's very important for us to define and we'll talk about why it's important for us to say this. Lovelyn, your definition of white privilege? Um, so, I mean, I think there's many ways one can unpack it. I think it's important to just say that white privilege is there, whether we acknowledge it or not. So whether white people actively um, try to take advantage of their privileges or not, they are in it, they're breathing in it, they're swimming in it. Um, I think probably the easiest way that I can communicate what white privilege is, it's not about hard work. I've always said to people there's no correlation between hard work and privilege. In many ways in our context, um, you know, white privilege means that uh, the work that white people do has always been allowed to count for something. So it's not that you don't work hard, but that whatever it is you bring or contribute is always considered valuable. It's the benefit of the doubt, right? It's that power of the benefit of the doubt that comes as having um, being white or having some sort of proximity to whiteness. It's um, having the power to decide what is normal. So the fact that when I'm going to do a radio interview, I will speak in a particular accent because this is the accent that I was taught makes me sound more white and therefore more right. Um, And part of white privilege, I think, is that uh, benefit of uh, accumulated power. So where over time, your privilege um, accrues interest. And so it's not even that you've got to do anything to maintain that privilege. It just keeps adding up over time. And so I think it's also important for people to know that whilst white privilege is a function of white supremacy, white privilege doesn't require only white skin in order for people to access it. Mm. So I can access white privilege in Mm. certain ways Mm. um, as a black woman by speaking in a certain way, by having access to certain class benefits, in our context where those class benefits are defined by race, um, I can access white privilege by behaving um, in a way that I think would not be threatening to white people in order to access certain benefits. So there are multiple ways that there are multiple access points to white privilege beyond racial classification, but it is important to know that it is rooted in a system that primarily benefits white people. Hmm. Having said all of this, and and, uh, both of you have touched on the word system, Um, it's interesting for me that South Africa grapples with white privilege, perhaps even more so now than before 1994. And for me, that says a lot about the system not having dealt with its privilege. 
So because mm-hmm. you have a government that looks black, it doesn't mean that this government is not perpetuating white privilege because its system has not addressed its privilege. Mm. Your response, Levelyn? Yeah, I think that's, that's quite an accurate way of explaining it. So on Thursday, I was um, responding to a lecture that Robin DiAngelo did touching on similar issues mm-hmm. to sort of contextualize how we understand um, whiteness and privilege in a, in a system like ours where people will say no, but black people are in power. So why are you complaining about white privilege? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to understand that when we talk about systems and when we talk about institutional power, we're talking about um, both political and economic and religious or cultural power. Mm. And in our context, even though we have black people at the helm of political leadership, the reality is that the majority of the people who are leading us, in my opinion, are anti-black. And they're anti-black because of their socialization. So we can't deny the functions of socialization, right? So growing up in a world where you're receiving very particular messages about standards of um, beauty, standards of authority, how to be in power, etc. So if we go back and we look at apartheid, I say that, you know, apartheid on its best day was affirmative action for white people. But if we really want to be honest about what apartheid was sort of in 21st century terms, apartheid was corruption, right? It was taking from the many to look after the few. Mm -hmm. And that black people then came and you know, became the new emperors at the table, doesn't necessarily mean that the system, so the way in which things were done, changed. Um, and I don't always, I don't really buy the argument around corruption as being a, a thing that negates, like a quid pro quo, so because there's black people in power and they're being corrupt, it negates all white privilege, it doesn't, because those black people are also socialized into a, a belief about a racial hierarchy where whiteness is at the top of that racial hierarchy. So, hesitant to take, for example, strong economic stances around certain things that might be of benefit to black people mm-hmm. is a way of pandering, right, to whiteness because whiteness owns the economy mm. um, or white people own the economy. And hesitation to take certain uh, um, sort of religious and cultural stances as a society is often to uphold a very particular um, understanding of what Christianity and faith is and who that represents, and all of that is deeply rooted in Anglo-Saxon European <laughs> uh, value systems. So it's all connected. I mean, we'll get through it in the yeah, interview, but it's, it's all connected, yeah. I mean, I chuckle because you're already, like, way past where I want, I want to get there. But, you know, <laughs> Kim, why is it important for a white South African to confront white privilege? Well, you know, the the Rainbow Nation, yeah. I always describe as a white man's medicine, mm. which has done more to harm than to heal, even if that was the original intention. Mm-hmm. And white people have had ample opportunity. I've written an article which I've said they've had marathon opportunity mm. to repent and show guilt and make reparations for the ills of their forefathers but from which they still benefit today. Mm. But there seems to be no moral, ethical or economic culpability. And yet, so white people live free in a new South Africa, Mm. free of facing their past Mm. and without any moral compass. I've written before, do white people have a moral compass? And I think we must go past the niceties and pleasantries on this. Let us look at what is at the root of this problem. In my view, the root of this problem goes back to land. Yes. The most vicious uh, act of corruption, the most vicious act of inhumanity was conducted when land was taken forcibly. Yet now we have a discussion in this country after years of debate, after low sluggish return of land. And we need to ask why, because I do not believe that unless land is returned, without uh, compensation, we will ever be free in this country and we will continue to be a place of white privilege. And yet we're not confronting that. Even the government, I was at the ANC Land Summit many years ago and there were many white commentators, strangely enough, brought in as experts. And there's been lots of debates. But when land was taken in the first place, there weren't years of debates. There was ruthless, brutal Mm uprooting of people, not only geographically, but culturally, socially, from their families. And 
And now we are faced with this problem that we are not actually dealing with or we're dealing with so slowly that we that we have a situation of land delayed is land denied. And that is the real elephant in the room. And yet the NC is too timid to confront whiteness. And that comes down to the essence. White privilege reigns supreme in the new South Africa. We think this is under the rule of a black government. That is not the case. So when we have the president um, going to London, he's actually speaking to his colonial masters. He's reporting on progress of this country. But I have yet to see him in Marikana and speak to the widows of those men that died. I have yet to see him be in critical black communities because in South Africa, the white child comes first, the white person comes first. And unless we confront that, we're going to be having this conversation for many years to come. And I don't want to be having that conversation. So we need to deal with this once and for all. We need reparations, real reparations from every single white person. And the one point I want to make is that we see white privilege as a matter of material wealth. It's not. Every single white person in this country is a child of privilege. Myself, a CEO, somebody who's um, on the streets begging for money, we are all children of privilege. There's no one who hasn't benefited from the from from the the inhumanity of apartheid and colonialism. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure we're going to get callers speaking to that point. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Every single white person today and tomorrow is a child of privilege. So going into this conversation, I knew two things were going to happen. We were going to have, as we announced what we were going to discuss, uh, a, a plethora of people who were going to switch off. Um, because they were going to be so annoyed that we're discussing something that, ah, as they would put it, divides us, correct? Ah, we add it again, can't we move on, and so on. And, and we need to talk about why that in itself is such a problem. Why the defensiveness around confronting race? Because you will have mm. a lot of people saying, I have black friends. I have great um, black employees as if to say you have to defend your stance and your relationships with black people to demonstrate that you're not racist. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a difficult one because people assume that racists have to be people with the, you know, with the. Mm. Um, the you conscious intention who, mm. who, who are also vile in their racism. But mm. racism is something that is it has been in our system it, it's it's something that was a culture so it's it's very difficult for someone to actually say they're not racist particularly in this country where the entire system was based around race mm. do you want, anyone mm. want to comment on that yeah i mean i i do want to just jump in so i think some of the the issues you've highlighted in terms of how people traditionally respond to conversations about race are essentially what um, we call uh, manifestations of, of white fragility, right? And that's sort of what Robin D'Angelo, um, who coined that term, talks about. But the ability to shut down or dismiss or to, you know, become defensive and not be interested in conversations about race, for me, I think it comes down to two things, right? I think the one thing is that if our understanding of racism is based on it being a malicious, evil, you know, conscious mm -hmm. act, that you take, then of course the moment I touch you on your studio about race as a white person, I am touching your very deeply held beliefs about who you are, that you are such a good person and it's difficult to think that you are a good person and also maybe exhibiting racist tendencies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first part. But the second part is also, and this is a conversation that I think white people need to have as a family with you is that we haven't had a conversation where we acknowledge the fact that in many ways white supremacy and the consequence of that white privilege has actually in many ways dehumanized white people, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. you've lost this, as a lot of white people have lost um, a part of their humanity mm -hmm. by being born into a racial hierarchy mm -hmm. where they're um, automatically at the top. Mm -hmm. And what is dangerous about that is that they actually in many ways develop a sense of self that is quite warped and mm -hmm. doesn't um, and it's not reflective of reality. And so in many ways, white people don't often think about themselves as other. They think about themselves as the norm, right? So I do quite a lot of workshops in schools and um, corporates, and 
I often hear people say things that, oh, we just need to understand other people's cultures. You know, if we just understand other cultures and understand each other, we're going to be fine. But the other that needs to be understood is not typically whiteness or white culture or Western culture. It is Kosa culture or Bedi culture or Zulu culture, right? So I'm the white person saying that is the norm. And then the other people in the room, you know, the other cultures are other. And in a context like ours, where you are in Africa, it is strange that African cultures or African ways of being are other. But until we can unpack that and say, oh, something happened for, for Africa to become other and for this, other, this way of being to become the norm, then we're not really having an, an honest conversation. And I think that there's a deep amount of shame connected to that. And I think because white people aren't often exposed to real critical conversations where they need to flex their muscles around racial literacy, they often stop at guilt, right? So I heard Kim mention guilt. And I think guilt is a natural process or a natural part of the process, but I don't think guilt is a helpful emotion because guilt paralyzes in many ways and it centers the person who has power. So we've got to move beyond guilt and move beyond shame and really reckon with this question of humanity. Like, what are the things that I don't need to think about as a white person in order to survive that black people and people of color in this country need to think about daily in order to survive? <laughs> and I think the same goes for any other, um, you know, part of, of your identity where you could be privileged, whether it's class or gender or uh, able-bodiedness, right? So I, I think a useful question to ask again is, not, it's not, am I racist or not? That's the wrong question. Because mm. if I say, Kim, you're racist, and Kim says, no, I'm not racist, the conversation ends there. But if we ask a different question and we say, how has race shaped my mm-hmm. life? Then we're entering an honest conversation where we can unpack where we've been privileged. Kim, do you concur with that? Because I imagine that if you are a white South African, and it's very likely that many South Africans um, were brought up this way, went to a white school, went to a white, you know, church where there's predominantly white people, in the neighborhood where they're predominantly white people, and their entire lives could have really been complete with everybody in their lives being white and not ever feeling like something's missing in the country where the majority of people are black. When you see it that way, you realize how it's not possible for that person to look at the world through the white prism only. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you both make very salient points. And, um, you know, for, for white people to be stewing guilt, and mm. it's quite a self-absorbed uh, thing as well. Mm. And once again, it, it goes back to the issue of white power and supremacy and privilege, mm. is that white people put themselves at the center of the universe, which is exact, exactly what you're describing. So the South African universe mm. that white people have grown up in have been white, mm. and black people have been on the peripheries of that. Mm. And... Um, that, that remains the case still. Yeah. I mean, we're in the most unequal society of the world. We look at uh, vast um, uh, acres and stretches of white wealth and uh, black poverty sit astride that. And yet we look at this as if it's a norm. So I think when white people view that, they see this as a norm. I think the real tragedy of our society is that black people are starting to view that as a norm as well. Yes. And that is terrifying. And it's the one thing that drives me every day is that this cannot become a norm or a the state of a a South Africa to be. And that's why we have to question it. Um, yeah. in, in every sphere of the world, in, in every sphere of how we integrate. But um, I think the issue is that, the, the terrifying thing is that white people continue to think they're superior. Mm. I mean, I must admit, like most South Africans, I don't speak an African language fluently. Mm. And it's, it's shocking because I have assumed through my life that black people will learn my language. So when I walk mm. into a room, people will, mm. will speak English. And it's, it's shocking, you know, those are the things that need to stop because white people are con- will continue to be at the center of the universe. Mm. But the terrifying thing, um, besides this norm of black poverty, mm. which is being accepted broadly by the black community as well as the white community, is the fact that I think black people are, see, especially the older people, are s- uh, see themselves as inferior. Mm. So there's a, a copycatting mm-hmm. of white values. Mm. Of, of white culture, mm-hmm. of white academia, mm-hmm. of following careers um, in that way. And that, that is terrible because unless the black person is at the center of his or her own reality, 
and world. Nothing is going to change. Mm. So it is the white person in South Africa and Africa that needs to be at the peripheries. But what we have is exactly the opposite. Yeah. And that requires systemic, structural and psychological uh, consciousness. Mm. Let mm. me let me take a quick ball before I go back to you, Lovelyn. Nkalenga, you're calling us from Durban. Good afternoon. Hi, Pamela and the guest. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling, Kalinga. Yes, white soft, I mean, white uh, privilege is going to continue in South Africa uh, unabated, similar, uh, if things continue as they are. Because uh, if you look at the uh, means of production, most of them are in the white hands. Uh, just where, look at uh, where uh, white privilege expresses itself. How do you explain that? Uh, Natasha Mazzoni managed to finish uh, her articles in law while not having completed the degree. So uh, being white in South Africa is a, a privilege. It makes you to be at an advantageous position as opposed to uh, your black counterparts. Lastly, you must go to read the Employment Equity Report. You will find that uh, most people who are in charge, you see those big companies and so on, are white uh, mates. So unless otherwise something radical is done, the status quo is going to continue <coughs> as it is. Kalinga, thank you so much for that take. I want to address something that both of you have, have started con- uh, this conversation on, around black hate. And that's that's the elephant in the room. That's the bigger problem, Lovelin, isn't it? Where... Yes, there is white privilege, that's obvious, but we're not talking about the, the black hate. So how is it that even in what we would deem as African culture, right? This African culture that, 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 that only seeks to validate whiteness and Europe, European um, traditions and in fact not only embrace them but call them their own so the mm-hmm. idea that for instance um, in what is a traditional home and practice you would have to have wear these long dresses and these long dukes and mm-hmm. and, 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 mm-hmm. and wrap yourself around all this cloth mm-hmm. and and be convinced and convince the world that is African tradition which it is not because we mm. refuse to even interrogate how mm. this became in the first place. Mm. And you are shunned mm. by your culture, you are shunned by your people, by your community, because you will not abide by what is culture. Whose culture mm. is it in the first place? We're not even mm. willing to go there. Yeah. So, um, so Pam, what you're talking about is what we refer to as internalized racism or internalized oppression, right? And this is when a group that has been um, marginalized or oppressed by another group starts to believe and internalize uh, some of the narratives that this system has put in place about them, right? So if I can just branch off quickly from race mm. and let's just think about gender quickly. Mm. Um, with, when I think about the people that I service and um, I do some corporate coaching, there are quite a few of my clients that are senior women in corporate, right? Mm-hmm. Senior, senior women in, in corporate. And typically, those women are the hardest people to work for, especially for young black women to work for them. So I'm talking senior women, but mostly senior black women. They are so difficult to work under, precisely because a lot of those women have had to internalize certain beliefs around what it means to be a leader. They've had to become one of the boys. Mm. They've had to fight so hard to become like the men, Mm. right, in order to reach the senior position of authority in corporate. And so in many ways, um, you know, they internalize sexism, they internalize patriarchy, and they start to practice that, right? So Mm. they become very um, what we would call aggressive when a woman exhibits certain leadership traits. Whereas when a man exhibits that, we would say, oh, you know, he's just such a leader, he's so decisive. Mm. And so these are the things that typically play out, but it also means that they also are much harsher on their female employees um, because they're approaching them with a very different lens or a different gaze. Mm. So bringing that back to this question of race, when you find that there are black people or communities of color who have started to internalize certain behaviors that actually recenter or reinforce whiteness. It's really got to do with the fact that 
not only was the battle won, you know, on land and the economy and all of that, but also in our minds, right? Mm. So psychologically, we have been violated, we have been traumatized. And with the erasure of our histories and the erasure of our memories, we have internalized certain lies about ourselves. So there's many examples of this. If you think about colored communities, for example, so in the South African colored community, there's a big thing um, around um, hair, right? So if you come from the one side of the family where your hair is bikini, straight hair, nice glossy hair, and, and the other side of the family has maybe more kusaracha, you know, curly and not sort of nice hair, right? There are forms of discrimination that will play out within colored families around that. In Indian families, it's often got to do with um, colorism. So mm, if you're on darker. the lighter side mm. of the family, you're the, on the writer side, and if you're on the darker side of the family, well, you know, unfortunate for you. We do the same, as you've mentioned, in black communities around culture, around accent, like I mentioned earlier, mm. because we've internalized the beliefs that we've been, the, the things that we've been told about ourselves by these um, systems of white supremacy, by colonialism, by apartheid education. And those are not messages that will just, um, you know, fall apart when you get a degree suddenly and you're more educated. Because often those messages take root in you from a very young age. So there's enough research that shows that children, for example, can make value judgments based on race between the ages of three, four, five. They can also make value judgments based on gender. How are they able to do that? Because they're getting messages from society. Just by looking at what they see on TV or who's in their neighborhood, who's in authority, who's in subservience, they're picking up these messages. And in the same way that we pick up these messages from a very young age, mm-hmm. my multiple degrees haven't been successful enough to break down all of my own internalized racism, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I do this work. But I hold particular mm-hmm. beliefs about black people. Lovelyn, I'm going to ask you to pause just yeah. because we've got to yeah. go to the headlines and then we'll continue this yes. conversation. Uh, we are talking about white privilege. It's it's quite a, a deep conversation. And I do mm-hmm. see your calls. Timal, I see your call as well, Paul. We'll take them after this. It's 2.30 now. Let's go to Utsilia Saku for the latest in headlines. Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. My guest is Kim Heller, a communication strategist and political analyst. And I'm also in conversation with Lavan Wade, who's social equity and social justice consultant. And we're discussing, yes, white privilege. Um, Lovelyn, I, I so rudely interrupted you because we had to go to the headlines, but I want to give you a, a moment to finish off the thought. Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the, the core of what I was just saying was um, you were raising this point about, you know, how black people interact with themselves. Mm. And mine was just to concur and to say that internalized racism does play out as hatred for oneself yeah. because of what you're taught or not taught, because of the messaging you're getting from society from a young age, and multiple degrees doesn't get rid of that. And mm. so I think even in many ways, when we think about things like xenophobia, for example, I'm a firm believer that xenophobia is in fact a a manifestation Mm -hmm. of internalized racism, at least in the South African context, Mm -hmm. where you um, have, you know, black people at the bottom of the pyramid playing out their own hatred for themselves on the people who are slightly um, more uh, marginalized and more vulnerable than they are, which is black African immigrants. And you see these tensions playing out because we have particular ideas, not only about ourselves, but also about each other. So I'm concurring that there's definitely a lot of um, psychic and healing work that needs to happen at a a sort of psychological and mental level in order to actually address the the broader question of white supremacy. Let's go to the calls now. Uh, Paul, you're calling us from Somerset West. Good afternoon. Thanks for calling, Paul. Good afternoon, your your guest. Yes. You know, regarding uh, white privilege, Mm -hmm. uh, 2018 figures say 5.4 million blacks are now part of the middle class. The total white population is 4.5. And on BBC Brit, there was, uh, end of last year, a program, 400,000. 400,000 white people live in squatter camps. If you deduct that from the 4.5, is 4.1 million uh, uh, white people left. And not all of them are rich. I personally grew up in the 50s, poor dirt. My parents were poor dirt. And uh, uh, regarding guilt, you know, uh, if you go back to history, in the 1820s and 1830s, King Shaka of the Zulus and his former 
uh, uh, military commander, Dean Kuzwayo, and uh, Dingani murdered after estimated one million black people. When the, the four attackers uh, was going into the hinterland, uh, what, uh, what later was called the Orange Free State in the Transvaal, they, they found skeletons lying strewn over the fields. They, it was uh, largely uninhabited. The people fled. The people fled into the mountains. That's why Mushwese was uh, uh, the leader of a small uh, Lesotho tribe, uh, gather all these people that fled into the mountains and uh, uh, molded them into the Basutu nation. So, Paul, let's, uh, let's ask you this Shaka quickly. That is revered by many black people. When his mother, Shantani, died, he uh, massacred with her. He buried 702,000 people. Let's engage you, Paul. Uh, let's let's all engage you. Was, was buried with her. Paul, let's so have a conversation. All the people that didn't laugh uh, loud enough was buried. Paul? Let's yeah. have a conversation together. What were the okay. white people? Let's have a conversation together. I'm going to give Kim a chance to respond to you. Okay. But what what were the white people doing in in the Midlands? I was talking about the four trackers when they were trekking into mm-hmm. into uh, the free state in Transvaal. There was literally no people. The people fled because there was massacred. If the four trackers didn't defeat uh, the Ghani, then today all black people would have been Zulu. The uh, Shaka was uh, murdered on an expedition t- uh, to the Eastern Cape to attack the Khorsas. His half-brother, Ghani, murdered him. And okay. if you take, I know about uh, a white uh, woman that went off a rocker in, uh, in the 90s when they have on TV this uh, images of people that was necklaced. And look at uh, uh, the t- uh, 2016 p- uh, provincial elections where 21 people... ANC people was murdered by ANC people okay. in so, Swane, on Pretoria because the people wanted a post. Okay, how, how, hang on, don't leave, don't leave yet. The no, point, the, the point of here. what the point of what you're saying is. My point is, you can't just blame white people for all the things. If you go to the rest of Africa, you know we are five percent of Africa's population. We produce sixty-seven percent of the electricity. Gauteng alone uh, contributes ten percent of Africa's. Uh, <sighs> you're going to have to hold on. You're going to have to. You, you, added country in the world. You're going to have to hold on. Forty percent of Africa's agriculture. Again, and the point the, of that. One lady was talking that all again, the land must be given back. Again, a few years back, uh, the, uh, the minister of agriculture, NC minister, said sure. that ninety percent, ninety percent of all farms that was once productive that was given to uh, the new black owners lay shallow. Please hold on. Paul, 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 I need need you. I need need you. And it's not production. We have between four and uh, estimated four and 14 million immigrants from the rest of Africa. Paul, I have other people that need to speak. Just give us a chance to respond to you. Just uh, you can't rattle stuff off. You've got to engage. Just hang on for a minute. Kim, he's saying that white people, all the black people who've been given land, according to him, um, have not really done much with this land and I, he's, min, he's said many things. What do you want to say mm-hmm. to him? Well, I'm not really sure how to respond to that. It feels like we are living in different countries and perhaps we are. So just quickly to go to the history of South Africa because perhaps there needs to be a very basic lesson on this country. Our history did not start when Jan, Jan van Riebeck landed in this country. In fact, um, the before colonialists arrived there was very successful uh, economies, farming, agriculture, in fact, some more advanced than European co- counterparts at that time. Black people were forced off land by violence and they were forced into the labor market as cheap labor. That is the history of our country. If we look at the current day, I'm not sure where Paul gets his statistics from, but I do remember recent statistics, I think from Stats SA, showing that 65% of black people in this country live in poverty versus one percent of white people so i think that is the reality of us of our current system so more than that i'm not really sure what i can say uh, possibly the last point is that he seems to associate w- white people with the development of both south africa and the continent and he couldn't be more incorrect in fact colonial invasion built european empires and it collapsed the indigenous indigenous fabric of South Africa, not only economically, but in terms of its, its 
took black people away from their families, from their, from their culture, from their homes, from any economic well-being. And that is the version of South Africa that is true, that perhaps has not been taught in our schools uh, properly and sufficiently enough. For instance, perhaps we need to have more of a black consciousness thrust and teach BICO in our schools, and we wouldn't have this nonsense being broadcast on the national broadcaster. Timor, you're calling us if from Malaysia. Yes, oh. yes, go ahead, Loveland, go ahead. Sorry, just a quick one. So um, what I would like to just suggest for Paul, and I hope he's still listening, there's a fantastic study that's been done by Professor Murray Leibrandt at the University of Cape Town. So he's been doing the National Income Dynamics Study, tracking income, social cohesion, all of that since 2005 or 2008. But it's, it's quite a long study. The point is that that study actually shows you what has really changed in South Africa. So Paul's absolutely right that the number of people that are part of what we consider the middle class in South Africa who are black has significantly increased. But the threshold for what is considered middle class in South Africa is very low, right? So in South Africa, if you're earning more than um, 8,000 rand 12,000 rand to be specific, actually. 12,000, yes. thank you. If you're earning more than 12,000 rand a month, you're like in the top 10% mm-hmm. of rich people in this country. So that threshold is so low in terms of what middle class means. Um, and also when you're looking at earnings in South Africa, so this is also from the National Income Dynamics Study. For every one rand that black people are earning, white people earn three rand. For every one rand black people earn, Indians are earning two rand seventy. For every one rand black people earn, colored people are earning one rand ten cents, right? So what I'm saying is we can talk a lot about like, oh, this happened, that happened, etc. We can't deny the fact that there's something about having a level of access, a level of opportunity that is compounded because of the history of white preferential treatment in this country. And that continues in a post-apartheid South Africa, where those laws are gone, but the benefits are still accruing over time. So I really want to encourage people to explore that National Income Dynamics Study, because it really shows you the real picture of what's going on in this country. And you'll see that in the South African context, race is still class. Race is still class. That's all I wanted to say. Timul, you're calling us from Lanasia. Thanks for your patience. Hi. Thank you very much, ladies. Whoa, I can I can sense it over the radio. You, all three of you are, are fuming. <laughs> <laughs> listen now, yes. listen now. I, 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 just give me a minute because I'm a bit of an elderly person. I, you know, you people have uh, uh, phrased this white privilege thing the wrong way. White privilege died in 1994. What really exists now, ladies, let's be realistic. There is a new ruling class in the country. The ruling class. Go and look at all the politicians. See where the children are studying. In the previously white schools, in the top schools, what are they preparing? They're preparing their kids to rule the country in the future. So they're creating, presently, they are the privileged class. The politicians are the privileged class. And they are the ones who are depriving the ordinary men, persons in the street men and women, from the privileges that they are supposed to get. Commendable amount of work has been done. Five to six million houses have been built for the blacks. Education has become free. Lights and water has been provided. These are commendable steps done by the government. But what is really uh, keeping the country black is not white privilege because whites are not in a position to exercise power anymore. (laughs) At interviews, at job seekers anywhere, bias is given towards b- blacks, and rightly so. I agree absolutely with that. But what the whites are doing with what they have, and I'm talking about people of Indian origin as well. During apartheid, we were the salami in the middle of the sandwich. We had no power. Presently, we're still in the salami in the middle of the sandwich. We have no power. But what we have. We give our children the best education. We, we teach them. Take every opportunity you get in education. Make something of yourself. Ladies, don't blame whites. Don't blame blacks. Don't blame anybody. Blame the privileged class in power right now. Thank you. Thanks, Tamil. Are you ladies surprised by the camaraderie between these two calls? Lovelin, are you surprised? <sighs> 
Yeah. Doesn't surprise me one bit. Are you surprised? Well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not because the thing is, I think as a society, we aren't um, genuinely racially literate as mm-hmm. a society. Um, so we don't, we think that because we come from a history of apartheid, we know and we understand how race and all these dynamics play out in the economy, in politics, in church, in culture. But we really don't actually have a... Like, the average person doesn't have a critical understanding of these things. And so I'm not surprised because it's easy also for people to make deductions based on what they're seeing um, within their own sort of world. But again, both of these calls, the numbers, the actual research and numbers that exist, do not back up what they're saying. Like, literally, they don't back up. So even if you want to talk about the elite or this ruling class, they make up 4% of the population and 95% of the elite group is white, according to the research from um, the income dynamic study. So again, like for me, it's problematic, but also it's because we're still sitting, and this is what Kim was cautioning against, we're still sitting in the conversation at the economic end of the conversation, which is for sure an important component of it, but white privilege is not just about economics, right? So even if all white people in South Africa were poor, living in a world where you have sufficient cultural representations and media representations of white people um, in particular positions or in particular um, situations that shows them in a positive light, that is part of privilege, right? Living in a world where the majority of our news stations, our publishing houses are owned, majority white owned, that speaks to a group having the authority to determine what the narrative about them is. Who's in academia? 75% of our full-time professors in academia are white. So what I'm saying is that, you know, if, if, we, if we just talk about it as being poor or rich, we're going to miss the bigger part of the conversation, which is really about socialization, how we come to be, how we come to this point. And that's not something that happens overnight, and it's not something that can be undone overnight. Kim, how do we get people like Paul to stop being afraid? I'm listening to a man who I think is terrified, is terrified of things changing in, in his lifetime, because this change for him means, you know, insecurity and so on. Mm. I think we spend too much time in this country worrying about white tears <laughs> and white fears, actually. And perhaps it, it should be taken off the table because and the focus should be put on black liberation, because what we what we keep doing by having um, a conversation about making a poor feel better mm. is that we're not listening to the cries of millions of black children in this country who are still placed second. And I mean, I'll tell you why that that I think for me is a little bit important because it's a Paul that hires the gardener in his home. Absolutely. It's a Paul that that still presides over people. And, And for me, if Paul doesn't get what is wrong with the system, it's unfortunately the gardener that's going to be burying the wrath. I, but I don't, this. my issue is dealing with, with this issue at that level. While mm. it is important, mm. I think that we have to deal with this systematically. Mm. We have, in 1994, the license of white supremacy was extended. It's as simple as that. Uh, the NC government, I never thought, I used to be a very strong NC supporter, I never thought they would uphold white supremacy like like they have actually and that's the truth it may not be something you want to hear it is my this is the truth that i would communicate because we have a system economically academically media wise that supports white supremacy and still until that is touched we cannot speak about individual responses i mean the economy has the nc has tinkered with the economy black people have to be included in the economy there's no transformation that this economy was never geared for white advancement, uh, sorry, for black advancement, oh, what a Freudian slip, for black advancement and liberation. But yet we're tinkering with this, and we will be doing this for many econs to come, unless we deal with this systematically. And that's why I don't want to uh, address the polls. I want to address Mm -hmm. the issue of the land being returned, of the economy being transformed. Those are the things that are going to change white people and liberate black people. In fact, liberate black people and white people, because until there's land return in this country and radical economic transformation, not one of us can be free. Loveland, do you want to add to that? I would like to just um, offer a different perspective. So Paulo Freire, um, he he was a a critical um, 
pedagogy scholar. And one of um, his most famous quotes in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he says, the unfortunate burden of the oppressed is not just to um, humanize themselves, but also to rehumanize the oppressor, right? And whilst I hesitate to put people in those binaries of oppressed and oppressor, I think for me what's important to note about that quote is that, at least in, 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 in Frey's mind, there's work that um, needs to be done even with the group, which unfortunately now, sorry for using you as the name, for this group. But I think it's important for us to think about um, creative ways of helping each other explore what a different version of our humanity can be. So again, I do a lot of interactions with white people specifically around this kind of work. And I find that a lot of it is rooted in the fact that they haven't actually had the opportunity to imagine a different world where they are not at the center or where they're not at the top of the racial hierarchy, right? And this is why I think this question, how has race shaped my life, is an incredibly liberating question. So I'm really offering it to white listeners to this um, conversation as a, a, a op- opportunity for liberation, to ask yourself, how has race shaped my life? Because I think when we start to ask different questions, we'll be able to get better answers. And part of the work of actually reclaiming one's humanity is to recognize that it is possible for you to exist on the margins without losing yourself, right? Black people, and I'm not talking about a ghetto-wise existence on the margins, right? I'm not saying, like, be poor, be hungry, be out of the system. I'm actually talking about just what it means to imagine that everybody can experience humanity without without it being at the expense of somebody else. And as long as the logic, as long as the logic of understanding where we come from, where we are going, what society should look like, as long as that logic is rooted in this thing that for me to progress, someone else must be kept down, it's going to actually um, maintain this perspective, this perspective of fear that white people have when they enter the conversation, because that fear is rooted in the sense that my only position that I've Mm -hmm. ever known is at the top or at the center. Mm. And that's very dangerous for how we construct, um, you know, opportunities for imagining a different future. <laughs> so we've got to start asking different and better questions um, because I think that's what's going to help us find liberation. Chris, you're calling us from Durban. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Tumelo, and to your guests. Good afternoon. I want to challenge this issue of blackness and whiteness. Um this construct for me is problematic because I think it was just created to accommodate certain uh, people into 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 Africa. Um, I, here we are deep in conversation now in terms of blacks and whites, and I'm really not sure if it's helping us a lot. Because as we were saying earlier, somehow we then we tend to miss the Indians in, in all this because they, I'm not sure where they fall in whether they black or white. Are we supposed to still? I just want the comments of your guests there in terms of us dealing with this matter by referring it into this construct of being white and black. Should we not call Africans and Europeans and Indians like we like to call Indians into, into this classification? Because it somehow becomes problematic if we address it in Chris, terms of... the government classifies Indians as blacks. Sorry, sorry, ma'am. The government classifies Indians as blacks. You see, that's a problem for me because now mm. we tend to miss them. If we are saying white supremacy versus uh, uh, blacks, you know, not all Indians classify themselves as blacks. You know that for a fact. Mm. So mm. I think this construct for how so somehow is a bit of a, a problem if if we want to deal with issues. First, let's mm. accept the fact that there's Africans and then the Europeans and Indians, then we'll, we'll, we'll get somewhere. Loveland, go ahead. I think I think Kula is raising such a, a valid and important point um, because the reality is that we know that so race as a, as a science, as a biological thing, we know that it's not real, right? Mm. We know that it's a useless concept mm. to work with. But the reality is that as a social, political construct, it does have meaning and it does have very real implications. Now, when we talk about white and we talk about black, obviously nobody clearly fits either of those descriptions if we're going to get like literal about it. 
But we know that ideologically, but also again in the process of socialization, the way in which we are um, um, uh, sort of groomed to see the world is in fact along these poles of white and black. And blackness is, is in many cases the extreme other for whiteness, right? So there's a reason why interactions, for example, between white people and Asian people might be very different to the interactions between white people and Indian people, which might be very different to the interactions between white people and black people, right? Because there's something about having a level of proximity to whiteness or having a, a level of proximity within this racial hierarchy that will determine one's experience, right? So I definitely agree with the caller that the constructs themselves are problematic, but it doesn't negate the fact that those constructs exist. They are very real in terms of people's um, lived experience, and it has very real implications for policy, right? So if you think about the apartheid government, one of the smartest things, and I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, that they did was with the, with the education system, there was differential spending, right? And same with, with housing, for example. So we know that during apartheid, um, you know, they spent about eight times more on the white ch- education of a white child than on a black child, five times more on the education of Indian children than on black children, three times more on the education of colored children than on black children. And this was intentional because they were entrenching a racial hierarchy along these poles of black and white, knowing fully well that there were multiple um, sort of ambiguities along that. We even know, for example, that before 94, um, you know, Chinese and Japanese people were considered white, right? And then they only became black after 94. So it speaks to the fact that this is not just about being fitting into traditional, like, European classifications, but it's also something about colorism and how one's proximity to a specific skin tone speaks to how much access you're going mm-hmm. to have to the benefits mm-hmm. of white supremacy. And I mean, that is a Another conversation. For another no, day. colorism <laughs> is a completely different conversation. Yeah. Brian, let me come to you quickly. Brian, your comments? Hello, I'm glad you've taken me. Sure. The first uh, bit of teaching I had as a young child was, who made you? And the answer was, God made me. And I'm very happy that God made me with the parents I had. And I hope that all of you are all happy with the parents that God made you and that you are happy with God. That's all I've got to say. Would you want to, Brian, I mean, what's the point of what you're telling us? Okay, he's gone. Listen, Lovelyn, wrap it up for us. Let me start with you, Kim. What's your take on all of this, especially this last call? Well, I think maybe just in conclusion, I'd like to say that the whole philosophy since 1994, sadly, has been to do not disrupt white privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what we need to do so that we start having the we stop having these conversations. And and, um, the, the key thing, I think, in this country is to put the black child first, because we have to recognize the history that the black child has been uprooted and um, and damaged through interaction with white um, people actually to tell the truth and we have to our media has to speak to this there are very few media stations and channels and programs and I thank you for that that would have such a robust discussion like this mostly it's prohibited yeah. we've got um, institutions that speak that defend and speak for white privilege. I mean, just let me end off with one example. The BLF, which is a black-only organization and a very good voice for for black consciousness, possibly the purest that we have in this country, has now been deregistered because of a white complaint. And so you have to ask, where are there spaces for black people in this country, but we're honoring white spaces and white privilege? And perhaps that's a, a a question I can put out as we end this program. Sure. Kim Hella, I'm so sorry, Loveland. We've run out of time, but I mean, um, we really appreciate the time you've given us as well. Loveland Nodea, uh, Nodei, who is also a social e- equity and social justice uh, consultant as well. Uh, Kim Hella is a communication strategist and political analyst. Ladies, thank you so much for the time you've given us this afternoon. Thanks very much. Pleasure.